Hello, hello, and hello, and welcome to another episode of Across the Dinerverse. Searching for the heart and soul of America, one diner at a time. How are you doing? I'm John Murphy, writer and producer on the science and technology series Innovation Nation, which airs Saturday mornings on CBS. And just check your TV guide for airtime in your area. And now I zigzag my way across the country talking to people over French dip sandwiches, tater tots, and chocolate malts about their lives, their hometowns, and how they feel about the good old USA. Does America need a massive 12-step program to get back on track? I don't know. Maybe. Probably. Something needs to happen and pretty damn quick. Now, the podcast is called Across the Dinerverse, but that doesn't mean I won't go to a cafe or a deli or a regular restaurant or even a bistro, which is where I am this week. A bistro, very international. And I'll get there in just a minute. As you know, my goal is to do a podcast from at least one diner or deli, cafe, bistro, whatever, in all 50 states. So if you'd like to help me reach that goal, please visit my Patreon page at patreon.com backslash dinerverse and become a patron for as little as three bucks, which means you can ask me questions about the podcast, throw out questions for me to ask other people, get exclusive behind the scenes photos and content, or You could use me as a plus one to attend a wedding you really don't want to go to. This week's episode comes from a recommendation by a friend of mine who said the owner has a very interesting life story, and the place is very popular. It's called Cosmo's Bistro. I just love the name. Cosmo's Bistro on the famous Route 66 in Glendora, California. And here comes the twist. Cosmo, the owner, opens the restaurant for free once a week, to host a 12-step recovery program for alcoholics, which I thought was very, very cool. So I reached out to Cosmo, and after some gentle coaxing, he agreed to let me set up shop in his place. And I met a couple of guys who were meeting there, both in recovery, and agreed to share their story. So this will be a two-part episode. Part one I'm calling The Old Timer, and you'll soon understand why. Next week, get this title, From Neo-Nazi to the Museum of Tolerance. Think about that for a second. From Neo-Nazi to the Museum of Tolerance. Do not miss that one. Unbelievable, incredible story. But for now, enjoy part one. Hello, sir. Welcome to the Dinoverse. What is your name? I'm Les. Les. We're here at Cosmo's Bistro. Are you, obviously, you're familiar with this place. You're in the restaurant. Are you a local to Glendora, California? Yes, I've been here 46 years. And I, I come over and eat. The food here is fantastic. All right. Do you know Cosmo? Yes, I do. How do you know him? By co- showing up. Okay, just you know, you're always, a regular customer. Yes, what I am. What do you do? Uh, I uh, manage my property. Oh, so you're like in uh, commercial properties. Yes. Manage that kind of stuff. Yeah. You own homes and apartments, that type of thing? Houses and apartments, yes. How's the business? Pretty good right it's now. It's good. Have you always done that? No, I, I was in the car business for 50 years. Wow. Yeah. 50 years in the car business? That's right. I started selling Ramblers in 64. How old were you? I was 20. You must have been a damn good car salesman to sell <laughs> cars for 50 years. I always liked cars. Since I was a little kid, I was... I was putting a motor on my bike at, in the sixth in the sixth grade. Did you ever own your own dealership? I sold worked for companies up to seventy five. In seventy uh, six, I 
opened a used car lot in Pasadena. I was there for 40-something years. You had your own used car dealership for 47 years? Yes. Man. We sold everything. New, used, trucks, whatever. There must have been a good money in that. Oh, it's great. It was great. It's not about the money. It's about service to others. When I went to work thinking that I could go to work and make money, I never sold anything. But if I went to work with the attitude of I could be of service to somebody, I couldn't keep up with my business. Isn't that amazing? Yes. That is an amazing revelation. Yes. When If you are into something just purely for the money, it may not work out. But if you're into it, you like it, but you're there to help other people, then it kind of, the door is kind of open. Immensely. How'd from you find a, that out? From experience. I remember I used to get in my car and I was thinking about all the money. I'm going to go sell a couple of cars and make some money and do this and that. And I'd go to work and nothing would happen. And then one day I said, what if I go to work and how could I just be of service? And, and I went there and I just helped somebody. And the next thing you know, I was selling something. And uh, that's how it works. Many times I was at the car lot and it was be dead and you know and somebody come around the corner and then uh that that would be the beginning and, and I, how and how would you help them I mean, you know in being a car salesman obviously the job is to sell cars so how do you help people by doing a better deal or how do you do it well i think it's the personal connection like we're doing right now you know once you get you find out their name and show them all different types of cars you know and show them how to buy a car because most people walk in, they don't know how to buy a car. Most people in a dealership, they're pretty intimidated most yeah, of the time. Yeah, and it takes forever. You know, I used to have people bounce off a new car dealership and hit my car lot, and I could sell them a car in 20 minutes. You know, they go to a new car dealer, they're there for a half a day. Yeah. There's no sense in that. I just recently bought a new car, and it took, uh, <clears throat> and I had a connection there because a relative had bought numerous cars from this one guy and this one dealership, and it was the brand that we wanted. And so there was a real, already a shorthand connection. It still took me th four hours yeah. to get out of that place with the car and do the paperwork and sign off and everything at four hours. Fast track. <laughs> <It's> not, <laughs> I was on the fast I think it's track. slow. Yeah. Right. Slow motion will get you there anyway, quicker. And what were your challenges, you know, being a car salesman for 50 years? Well, at, at the beginning, it, I wasn't always that way. Up to, before I was thirty, it, it was, I worked for the largest dealers in the in the city, and everybody was running a hundred miles an hour. You know, so it was we we'd be drinking and doing other stuff. You know, and uh, that led to disaster for me. Oh, the partying! Oh yeah, killed me. I was thirty. I was a dead man walking. So, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't hold a job. I, I had a lot of talent, but I couldn't finish anything. Were you an alcoholic? Yes. So this is when you were 30 years old. 30 years old, I ended up in the hospital. How long were you in the hospital? Uh, 30, I went through a 30-day program uh, in, in Pasadena. Like a they, treatment center? Yeah. Okay. And I came out of there, and I went to uh, the Bishop Gooden Home in Pasadena. There I, I learned some basic things. You know, uh, how to live. You know, I got up in the morning, they'd cook you something to eat. I don't know anything about eating in the morning. We, I drank 6 a.m. Oh, wow. And I drank the function, you know. How much would you drink per day? It wasn't how much I drank. It was the effect. You know, it was the magic elixir. I could be a doctor, a lawyer, or an Indian chief. You give me the a, a couple of shooters or whatever. That was a functioning 
<clears throat> drinker, alcoholic, till it, it grabbed me by the throat and threw me to the ground, killed me. Killed me. So what, what was that? So you hit a bottom. I hit a bottom. And yeah. what was the bottom, I if you don't mind sharing? I was I was hanging on a stop sign on the corner of Parkwood in Colorado in Pasadena. And my <clears throat> barber's husband came around the corner and said, get in the car, I'll give you a ride home, you poor devil. And I, I went in the car and, and he took me home. And uh, I was in a blackout for three days and and did what I normally did, drank. You know, and when he took me home... Uh, the lady I was living with at the time was uh, getting information on hospitals and alcoholism and stuff. And she told me about this hospital, and I said, I, I need to go there. Because there was no place else to go. I just wanted to die. That's it. I didn't want to live mm -hmm. anymore. My my thought was, I don't know how to live, and I don't know how to die. That's what got me to that hospital. And uh, that's where I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. And, uh, you know, they came in with a smile on their face and a step on their walk. And I thought they were smiling at me. You know, I was so paranoid and so crazy, you know, and didn't know how to live. Because I, I ran, started running away from home in the sixth grade. I ran till I was 30. Looking for, so from the, age of, from the age of being in sixth grade to the age of 30, you were yeah, on the run. On the run. I was always looking for some place out there to make me feel good in here inside myself and i always ended up zero so i'm hanging on that the stop sign is really an important thing here on the corner of parkwood in colorado because i got out of that hospital and i went went into the recovery house and then i went i, I went and got a job selling cars uh, i worked there as a salesman and then I, I i was then i was a used car manager and then i I went as a general sales manager for Nissan in 1976. Now I, I have, you know, I have a car. I got a three-piece suit on. I got a little prestige, a little money in the bank. I found myself lying on the floor of my office with the door locked. And my head was, I felt like somebody put me in the oven and turned me on broil. And a little voice said to me, quit your job. And I thought, quit my job? Are you kidding? I I got a little something here, and I'm got a little self-esteem, and you want me to quit, quit your job, and yeah, quit your job. So I went to the owner and said, "Hey, you know what? I quit." And he says, "Wait a minute, you're just burnt out. It's December the 15th. What I want you to do is uh, take off till January 2nd. Come back on the 2nd. I'll keep your salary and your car. You're you're very valuable to us." So now I'm like a little kid in a candy store. And I and I went home and I went. I was go. I was going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was <clears throat> having that time off. And now here comes January second. I dress all up, roll light in. I get into my office. I wasn't there three minutes, and the same thing happened to me. I felt like someone threw me in the oven, turned me on broil, and, and I thought I told you quit your job. So I went to the, I went out back and found me an old Volkswagen. Reporter sailed it to myself. I went to the owner and said, "Here, I I don't belong here. I don't know why. I don't know where I'm going or anything, but I'll I'll see you later." I left there with that little Volkswagen and a thousand dollars in the bank. That's all I had. And I next day I picked up a a newcomer, and I was taking him to a meeting. His name was Barney, and he was from Lubbock, Texas. He was an old car salesman. I'm thirty. He's 60. 
Hmm. He said, hey, son, you see that lot over there? Let's rent that lot. We'll sell cars there. They wholesale out of the back. We'll buy cars out of there. And I thought, you know, you're crazy. I, I have only a thousand. I don't know. I know how to sell cars, but I don't know the business aspect of it. So I'm going to make a long story short. I, I rented the lot for 450. I'll put a payphone on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and we started selling cars. Right? People would call the payphone oh, yeah. to make an appointment or whatever? Yeah, whatever. I'd call them or whatever. <laughs> That's how it worked. 1976. And uh, uh, what, what I would do, though, <laughs> I, every time I'd go to work, I'd put the key in the door and say, I need your wisdom and strength to run this business, God, whoever you are. So you're praying to God. Yeah, I'm, a saying, God. I'm praying to God. My prayer was, I don't know who you are or what you are, but I need some help. That was... That's when my life really changed. So you, know? you, you got to a place of powerlessness. In sobriety. Oh, because powerlessness in sobriety. There got you it. go. Yeah, yeah got yes, it. Yes, I did. And I realized that uh, I'd go through all these trials and tribulations, but I always, my foundation is Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous uh, taught me how to live. Not only they taught me how to live, they showed me how to live. I saw people smiling and walking and talking had a sparkle in their eye they had a step to their walk mm -hmm. i didn't have the faith they had but they showed me the faith they had and i, I just followed and that's uh it saved me so many times because when you when you when you're not sure and you're in pain you know when you first get sober your brain says drink because for all all your life that's what you did you you drank to kill the pain you drank to give you the strength to go across the street or what to function, you know, but I, I so the alcohol was really a symptom. It was, you know, the, the virus or disease is something else inside of you and you right. drink to, yeah. to calm that, whatever that thing is that's driving you crazy. That's right. It was, it was the magic elixir until it doesn't work anymore. And then when all that stuff doesn't work anymore, you got to find a power greater than yourself, which I choose to call God to give you the strength and the courage to live one day at a time, and some minute, sometimes it's a second at a time, you know. Mm -hmm. What about the people who hate God or are atheists or don't believe in God? How can they possibly follow this program? Uh, they can make the group. You know, some people use the group uh, as a power greater than themselves. You mean like the meetings? Like the meetings I see, and, okay. and, and the fellowship as a whole. Got it. And I've, I've talked to a lot of uh, agnostics, atheists. And they and and the way they present it sometimes, it's like they say they don't believe, but they're saying they do believe. It's it's really there's a catch there. I mean, I believe that everybody has that pilot in them, mm -hmm. and someone's got to come by and light the match. You know, it's there in every human. But what happened to me was I was in at that car lot for two years. I was going to buy the property. And the owner came to me and says, look, you got, you got 30, 30 days to move. I'm going to come in and sell cars. I was devastated. <laughs> of course. Said, and so I'm, I'm in my office and I'm wondering, what am I going to do? And this lady came in with this little three-year-old kid. And I, I, walk, I could hardly walk. I was almost paralyzed with fear. And I walked out to help her. And this little kid uh, reached his arms up to me. 
and with a smile, and I picked him up, and he gave me a hug. It was like a thousand volts of love went through me. And it was like God saying, don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. That was amazing. So I left that car lot, and then I went to work for my uncle. So a kid, a, a hug from a kid kept you going. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. So I bought a car, and uh, I sold it to a guy named Checkbook Charlie. <laughs> he owned five dealerships in Pasadena. And he says, hey, Les, why don't you rent my lot up there? And, and he threw me the keys, and he says, here, pay me the rent next month. And, and that next day, I was in that lot. And that lot, I looked up, and I saw the stop sign. That was the stop sign. The same stop sign you were hanging off of, out of your mind, blotto drunk? Yes. Same stop sign on that corner. And I said, man, how do you get from hanging on the stop sign wow. to being on the corner? That's a great story. Right? That's a great story. But, but I, had, I was there 40 years, so I had so many of those stories. I mean, one time I had a guy, he, used to, I, he bought a car from me. He, he came in and he used to help me move cars around. And one day he came, he says, hey, the church threw me out, out for smoking. And I said, Richard, just go to another church. It doesn't matter. Right. And he said, no, I'm, de I'm done with God, right? So I said, <laughs> <laughs> That's religion. Right? right, right. It's totally bullshit religion. Right. Yeah. So here's the kicker. An old car rolls in from Philadelphia, and I sell him a car. I put the car against the wall in the back window of the package tray. There was a, a book in there. I say, there's a book over there. So I go over there, and I got the book, and I open it up. It's a Bible. Mm. And when I opened it up, it said, Richard Balsamico. That was him. And this Bible came all the way from Philadelphia, and I showed him that Bible. He turned white. Wow. I said, you know what? I think I think God has a message for you here. The Bible in that car from yeah. Philadelphia, 3,000 miles away, that ended up in your lot, yeah. was this guy's Bible? Yeah. Yep. Odd he, or he God, said, right? That's right. That's what they say. You figure How it do you out. explain that? I can't, but I, I, I know there's a God because I've had too many divine appointments, call it that. You That's know, interesting. Yeah, very many of those. So what is the foundation of the 12 steps? You know, we talk, you know, there's a lot of knowledge about AA and the 12 step. Everybody jokes about 12 step programs. I got, you know, oh, I love chocolate cake. I should do a 12 step program, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> uh, what is the 12 step program? Are well, you, by the way, are you allowed to even talk about it? Isn't, oh, yeah, yeah, I can talk about isn't it. Isn't AA kind of like Fight Club? The first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. No. Aren't you not supposed to talk about? Is no. it supposed to be anonymous in Alcoholics Anonymous? Pro program of attraction, not promotion. Right. We're non-denominational. We're not affiliated with any church or, or religious organization. Mm -hmm. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. I knew, when I got to AA, I knew I was powerless over alcohol. But how do you live without this alcohol? You're not yeah. cured from it. You're still no. an alcoholic, I technically, a, yeah. right? I have a daily reprieve based on my spiritual condition and the con and the maintenance thereof. The maintenance is 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 me going to meetings, is uh, having a sponsor, being able to be uh, transparent with another person, because my whole life, my mom died when I was seven, and my dad died of alcoholism. So I had alcoholism 
before I ever took a drink. Once I took a drink, it was like throwing gas on the fire, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, uh, I didn't know how to live. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, I learned how to live. And through the steps, the second step is, is uh, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I had a hard time with that, you know, and uh, because I was so crazy. And if you knew what I was thinking, you know, you take me down to Norwalk, they just fill me up with Thorazine or something. But that's not the case in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that's one thing, you know, they accept you as you are. Doesn't matter where you've been. The sickest people in the world walk through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and recover. You know, it's well, like... What about all these treatment centers? Do those treatment centers really work? I mean, people are paying tens of thousands of dollars per month. Insurance is paying tens of thousands of dollars per month. And yet people are like relapse and relapse and relapse. What's the connection or disconnection? Treatment centers have nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. It's separate. Um, I've been sober 47 years, one day at a time. And uh, I know it sounds like a long time, but it's just like yesterday, like you, you, you were just a kid. You remember, right? It's the mm-hmm. same thing. I got here at 30. I'm 79. and uh, You're 79? 79. I got to be honest with you. You do not <laughs> look 79. No. You really don't. I got high miles to deduct for reconditioning. <laughs> <laughs> you, you really look like a guy like in his uh, mid-60s or something. Well, I mean, you. you look really great. Thank you. I appreciate that. A byproduct of Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you ever crave a drink? Do you ever see a Never. drink once in a while and go, no. I'd just love to have one beer, No. one glass of wine? Nope. Nope. Not even. Wow, Never, that's wanted, great. Never wanted a drink since I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wanted to run away. You know, uh, I wanted the pain to go away because when you get sober, it's like uh, you come through the Earth's atmosphere with no heat shield. You know, it hurts. Oh, that's a great description. You know, it hurts. And uh, pain is the price of admission because if I'm having some kind of emotional pain, I know I'm going to learn something and I'm going to grow. See, all my life as a kid, and as, as I got to 30, I never grew up. I got to Alcoholics Anonymous at, at 30 and I was seven years old emotionally. When my mom died, I shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when my dad, I, my, I had a lot of resentment toward my dad. And, and, and I was mad at God, but, you know, why you take my mom and drop me on the planet by myself? You know, it was like I felt alone. You know, I had no support, you know, and in Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship is the strongest thing. You could have all the knowledge of the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but you have to have the fellowship and be in the middle of it, be in the middle of the pack, because if you're in the middle of the pack, you'll survive. If you're on the outskirts and you don't make... Alcoholics Anonymous, your your foundation, uh, it, your chances are you, you'll drink again or you'll go crazy and you'll kill yourself, which I've, I've had a lot of people die uh, because they don't do they don't do the work. You know, anyway, the second step is I had to come to and then come to believe in a power greater than myself. And, and they have a, a saying there, if you could take that piecemeal. In other words, you go to the third step, you know, where I made a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God as I understood him. So I went home, got on my knees and said, here, I'm crazy. I don't know who you are, what you are, but I'm going to turn my will and my life over the care of you. And here I am. And I'm still doing that in the morning. I, I, I exchange. I call it the great exchange. I exchange 
my will for his will and say, hey, where are we going? Because the night before, I have all my schemes and plans and my whole day changes <laughs> and it's, it's not my time anymore. So what my prayer today is use my time while I'm on this planet you know, wisely. Mm -hmm. What about, because I've heard people say this, accuse AA of being a cult. Did you ever look up what cult is on, on, your, on the dictionary? All right, I found it on my phone. Here's the definition of a cult. A relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. A system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward a particular figure or object. So is AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, a cult? I don't think so. It's just like uh, when the sick people need a doctor, they go to the hospital. Alcoholics Anonymous is the waiting room. More people walk through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. They have a 50-50 chance of, of staying. I mean, if they work the deal. I mean, there's a lot of people come in and, and go over courts and... Courts assign, like drunk drivers, right, you know, right. that you have, you're mandated to go to go Alcoholics. To we'll sign, we do that as a courtesy. It's not, we don't have to. Right. But we do it as a courtesy. What do you think the percentage of success is using AA in the 12-step program? Well, I think if you if if you work the twelve steps, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has the highest rate for recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I think it's somewhere between forty five and fifty percent. Now they come that with real low numbers if you go look it up, because they're counting anybody that walks through the door and walks out, and that to me is not being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And obviously, there's a myriad of offshoots you have. Cocaine Anonymous. You have you gambling addicts, you know, all kinds of Narcotics Anonymous. But they all use the 12 steps. So that's the spine of everything. That's the, the spine 12, of all the, the recovery. The 12 steps. I, I, I believe that uh, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is outlined in the Bible, shown into a way of action. You have to take the right action to get the different results. If you keep on doing the same thing, over and over again, that's insanity, you know, expecting different results. Do you think people who don't have a drinking problem or a drug problem or a gambling problem, do you think they could do this 12-step program and, and benefit from it? It's all positive. Is there a therapeutic, like almost a, a psychiatric or psychological component to it? I'm bodily and mentally different, different than a normal person. I have what they call an X factor. Now, everything I've said is just my opinion. Right. It, I'm not an authority on Alcoholics Anonymous or any of those other anonymous programs, but I know I know this that for me, I I can't pick up a drink or use any kind of uh, mind-altering medications because it it doesn't it works in rever reverse for me and sends me down the wrong road. It distorts my thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as a man thinketh, so he is. You know, I have to watch my thought patterns. Everything I used, I thought I knew I had a, a race. Have you ever doubted it? Alcoholics Anonymous? Yeah. No. I'm proof in the pudding. I mean. And how many years sober? 40 something? 47. 40. Congratulations. Yeah. And uh, you don't look like you're 79 years old. <laughs> Do you have peace of mind? Do you have a joyful life? Oh, my, my. God is the God of a second chance. I mean, I, you know, I got five kids. Uh, two died from the disease of alcoholism. You lost two of your own children yep. to the disease? Yes, I did. What's that like, burying your own kid to alcoholism? Oh, it's hard. It's, uh, I, had to sit and, I had to thaw out you know, in, in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was like, 
I have this mechanism inside me since I was a little kid. Uh, I could go numb. I could numb myself and not feel. And that's not a healthy thing. But uh, I had to go to meetings and sit on the, sit on the chair and thaw out when that happened. Mm. And then uh, by writing inventories uh, to, and looking for patterns, you know, I had so, a lot of resentment towards my dad and stuff. And I grew up in the flower business. And, and my, my dad taught me a lot of things. And he died of alcoholism. And uh, as, a, as a seven-year-old kid, when I went to live with him, uh, I saw how he used to sit in the middle of the room and, and be drinking at 2 o'clock in the morning before he went to the flower market. And then he'd be throwing up. I never realized what he was feeling until it happened to me. And so when I wrote my inventory, all the resentments I had towards my dad, and then my sponsor said, hey, draw, draw a line. And what's your part? I never once thought of how he felt when I ran away from home in the sixth grade, how I ran away and I kept running, was gone a year, you know, or the pain or the wondering where I was, you know, and I always, uh, I tried to go back and visit with him, you know, uh, and I, I wanted to see him. I remember one time and it was in a driving rainstorm. I got off the bus and I got real wet. And then my pride kept me from going in the door for, you know, to go mm. visit him because I was soaking wet and I was tired. And I turned around and never saw him. Until when, the last time I saw my dad, it was I ran away from home and I, and I hitchhiked across the United States to uh, New Orleans. And I came back into town. They said, hey, you better go see your daddy's dying. How old were you? I was 15. Jesus. Yeah, 15. Jesus, and, 15 years old. And I worked in, in Chicago, too, and uh, I came back a year later, and I went and saw him, and he was dying, and he died. Good, I'll get the flower shop and kick my stepmother out. I made a list of all the p people I had harmed and became willing to make an amends, and my stepmother was on the, on the top of the list. I, I was scared to death to go make that amends. So I, I just got in the car and took the action, went into the flower shop, made my amends and she talked to me because she taught me a lot. I went to live with her when I was seven until I was 15. So, and she told me her side and she became my mom and I had a 38 year relationship with her. I, I was the fire department. She had a problem. She just called me up and that would have never happened had it been for the Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. And as far as my, my, my dad, I wrote him a letter at his grave and I realized uh, what was my part? You know, I was a selfish kid, and that he taught me a lot of good things. You know, how to be service to others, I, how to work the cash register, how to go buy flowers, how to sell flowers. All that stuff came to play later in my life. So I, I don't have any resentments. I don't have any anger. I don't have. I have nothing. I have love for my dad. I love my dad. You know, and I I know what he went through. The pain and the suffering of alcoholism. You know, alcoholism is a family disease. It, it affects everybody in the family. You know, the, while the alcoholic's drinking, the rest of the family's going crazy. If you have a problem with alcoholism, go through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and sit down and listen. And, and the families, they should go to Al-Anon. Al What's Al-Anon? Al-Anon for, is for the families. Oh, to kind of understand what an alcoholic is. You know, it's 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 learning how to take care 
of yourself and keeping your focus on on yourself rather than on the alcoholic or other people, places, and things. That's pretty smart. Yeah. Because I'm sure there's plenty of collateral damage oh, uh, living with terrible. an alcoholic or in the terrible. alcoholic family. What do you think the hardest step is? Now, do you sponsor people? Yes. Okay, so what is, in your experience, what is the hardest step for most people who are trying to get recovery? For, for made of searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. Moral inventory. Tell somebody your whole life story. Write ah. it down. Write it down. The darkest stuff. Yeah, well, everything. Everything. The everything. worst, the worst the of your that you've ever done. Everything. Damn. Where, you, Damn. Totally transparent. We call them sponsors. And then, Oof. yeah. Then, then you got to tell them. You got to write it down. That's the four, five. You tell. You share it with this this people. Yeah, and then you you make your list out of that that inventory. I can't, and usually you get you become sick and tired of being sick and tired, and and you realize you have a character defect, you know, like like control issue. There's a whole bunch of them, you know. And, Do you uh, see people exchange addictions one from the other? So if they show up in AA meeting and they get a hold of. Uh, they get a grip on alcoholism. Do they morph into something else? Could they become a sex addict or a gambleholic or How about a Candy's dandy. What is it? Candy is dandy. What about chocolate? Candy? Yeah. Oh, I see. Got it. Right. Right. Yeah. A sweet. Yeah, a sweet it. addict. I mean, I use whatever I work till it didn't. Till I realize it doesn't work. I, I need a power greater than myself to get me through six and seven. Ask humbly. Ask them to remove my shortcomings. So Les has the manager of his life, that's you. You can't do it. You need something else to help you do it. Definitely. I'm powerless. Well, it works for you, man. Look at you. You still here? <laughs> I'm still here. You still here? Not all there, but I'm still here. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And just real quickly, where can people, if somebody's listening to this podcast and they think that they're struggling with some form of addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs or shopping or workaholism, gambling, sex, whatever it is, what advice would you give them? Go to a meeting. They got them all. They got. How do they find gamb- one? Just look look them up in the on your phone. Gamblers Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. They just Google it and then it'll take them to They'll a meeting take in their them area. Right there, and, and you'll find somebody that has the same problem. And when I got to the meeting, it was like, man, I'm not the only one. That's the whole thing. Is identification is everything. Hmm. You know, you you feel so alone, and if you knew where I was, or or, or what I'm doing, you, you know, you wouldn't love me. Because I'm not alone. Other people are helping you through it. That's right. You're not alone. That's great. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. Les, welcome to the Dynaverse. Thank you for talking with us. It's been a pleasure. And the food here is great. <laughs> <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA, was formed in Akron, Ohio in 1935 by two men. Bill Wilson, known as Bill W., a former Wall Street stockbroker, and Dr. Bob Smith, both hopeless alcoholics at the time. Now, what they figured out with the help of a Christian organization called the Oxford Group and other medical professionals was that addiction was not a moral failing by an individual. It was a disease that needed treatment, and that alcoholism was merely a symptom of bigger mental emotional issues. Bill W. and Dr. Bob drilled down on the causes and conditions that can lead somebody into addiction. Things like childhood trauma, physical abuse, emotional abuse, mental abuse, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, self-hatred, and the list goes on. 
The two men started compiling what worked and more importantly what didn't during the recovery process of other alcoholics they tried to help. And Bill W. sat down and wrote what is now known as the Big Book of AA. It was published in 1939 and included personal testimonies of 30 individuals who were able to attain and keep their sobriety. In other words, they shared their story, which is one of the key reasons 12-step programs work. Today, AA has helped millions of men and women get sober and restore their lives. There are well over 100,000 AA groups in over 150 countries worldwide. If you think you have an issue with alcohol, or maybe it's narcotics, or gambling, or sex, or eating, or something else, you can visit, for alcohol, aa.org, for narcotics, na.org, gamblersanonymous.org, for sex and love addiction, slaafws.org, to name a few, and now I'll post all of these websites on my podcast page under the show notes at thedinerverse.com. That's thedinerverse.com. Now, meet the man who opens his heart and his restaurant, Cosmo's Bistro, to those who need it. Are you the famous Cosmo of Cosmo's Bistro? Uh, unfortunately, yes. You know what? i got to be honest with you. I love the name Cosmo. Can I tell you why? Why is that? When I was a kid, between the ages of 11 and 13, I had a paper route in the small town in Nebraska I grew up in. And I was a fat kid. Nobody liked me. I was just all by myself. I had was lonely. But the very last house on my paper route, they had a golden retriever. And his name was Cosmo. Nice. And this golden retriever saved my life. This dog loved me unconditionally. He played with me. I took naps in his doghouse. He laid on me. And so I have forever loved and adored the name Cosmo. Very good. Yeah, uh, we were born in Scotland, but my father was Italian and my mother was uh, second generation Italian. Wow. And all the kids, uh, Cosmo, Leo, Giulio, Enrico, Gino, they all have Italian names. So Cosmo, the Monsignor, came over to the day I was born and said, this is the feast of St. Cosimo and Damiano. And it turned out they dropped an eye in the middle of Cosimo, and uh, there was a picture house, like a theater, like an AMC-type theater in Glasgow, Scotland, that was called the Cosmo Theater, and they kind of just named me Cosmo, out of the blue. Just out of the blue? Out of the blue. How do you like the name Cosmo? I, I like it. It grew on me. It, I used to get teased a lot, but uh, eventually it became kind of unique. Especially in a bar. People say, I want a Cosmo. Give me three Cosmos. Or, me- uh, for instance, Seinfeld. Uh, when, oh, yeah, when, Cosmo uh, Kramer. Yeah, I got a lot. I lived in San Francisco at the time. <laughs> and I used to go play pool after work. And I put my name on the board. And they say, oh, yeah, Cosmo Kramer. <laughs> so it kind of. So your, your family's fr- originally from Scotland. Correct. What city? Uh, Glasgow. Glasgow. Yeah. I've been there. It's a great city. Yeah, it is. A lot of culture. Yeah, a lot of great old pubs there as well. Yeah. And a lot of people who work in the North Sea on the oil rigs live in Glasgow. It used to be big back in uh, back before my I was born. But the, uh, the Clyde used to be a big port for, for instance, American soldiers coming over or, or big co- commerce around there. How in the hell did you get to Glendora, California? Well, my mom's sister's both emigrated to the United States. We came in 79. They came over in about 69, I believe. Mm. They emigrated from uh, Glasgow to 
I think one stopped back east and the other one ended up, they ended up in Glendora anyways. And so my dad used to own two fish and chip shops over in Scotland. And uh, the government wanted to knock them down and build housing. And they just happened to visit the time this was all going on. And they said, hey, you guys should move to sunny California. And one thing led, led to another. We applied for uh, legal residency. And mm-hmm. before, before we knew it, we were over here. How That's long did it take you to actually become a legal citizen and assimilate here in the United States from Scotland? I'm still not a citizen. <laughs> really? Yeah, I never got my citizenship. I've how been does here that since work? I was 10. How, 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 you've, been, how, you've been here since you were 10. Correct. I'm legal. legal you are legal. Okay. Legal alien. I'm still a citizen of the United Kingdom. You don't have to. You can be a resident alien. It's called your uh, green card. Right. And, and do, do you have everything, everything that a citizen would do. For instance, but do you have to renew it every five years? Correct. Do you have to take ten years? Every ten years. Yeah. How difficult is it to maintain that status for decades after decades? If you leave the country, it is. But I've I've never left the country. I guess if you leave for over three months, I believe, then they can take take it away from you. I was going to become a citizen, but I went. The lines were so long, and I was always in a hurry. And I just said, you know what? I'm not going. To, I'm not going to ever be running for government or working a government job. So it's pretty much the same thing. So why go through the hassle? Why even bother? So you have a very interesting perspective on this big conversation we're having nationally in this country about immigration. What's your take on it when you see people coming across the border and people trying to get into this country? Based on your experience and what you're doing, a legal resident alien for decades. What's your view on the American immigration system right now? It's been broken ever since I've been here, basically, right? Have they ever, they've been talking, every election, every four years, they're always talking about the border. Have they ever done, fixed it? No, it doesn't matter if there's a Democrat or Republican. People are, need to feed their family, and that's why they're, other countries are oppressive, and... That's why your family came here. Yeah, they did apply for, it took a couple of years. But I see what you're where you're but, going. But, you're but I is, feel bad for the people yeah. in other countries that are just trying to survive and will pretty much do anything to to feed their family. And mm-hmm. I understand it's not their fault; it's the government's fault. I believe. Do you have any idea on how we could remedy the situation? I don't. I don't and I. It's very complex. It's really complex. I mean, you got to fix other countries. There's got to be trade between these countries at our border. We've got to make them stronger. I don't see a lot of people from Canada wanting to run in here, right? Right. And uh, my coworker was telling me going from the United States to Canada, it seems I've never done it, but it, she said it's, they, it takes quite a while to get across the border. Have you ever gone from the United States to Canada? Well, just to visit, yeah. I mean, going and how through. And how was the... Uh, They're pretty strict. Yeah. You know, I mean, especially during COVID, you had to have all your COVID paperwork and all your shots and vaccinations sure. and proof and all that kind of stuff. It was a little tense, yeah. Yeah. But I, I have never tried to immigrate there. I've never wanted to try and move to Canada and live there yeah. as, as a you know, legal resident or whatever. So I don't know what that process is like. But I think it's very interesting that your parents came here to the United States to get away from a situation where the government was taking their business to turning into public housing. They found a, a desirable place to try and reestablish that business, bring the family here, great weather, 
a great opportunity. Did your parents struggle in trying to make a life for you and your family here? Well, we have also we have seven kids, right? So Oof. to to bring seven kids to the United States and a country that was just so different than the country we we all grew up in. They they went through a lot of pain and like my dad was a businessman over there. He owned a couple of fish and chip shops. Mm-hmm. Here he had to get a job at the, the Vons factory down in Irwindale where he was pretty much packing meat. And Vons a is, different... a, is a grocery store chain. Correct. Yeah. And my mom got a job at on a, on a assembly line, pretty much uh, electronic assembly line. To mm. so factory work. Yeah, factory work. They went through a lot. They were in the, uh, almost 50 at the time when the, we moved here. Oh, that's so it was, late. It's a yeah. big It's a big change of life, bringing seven kids to a new country and not knowing what was going to happen, basically. What's your memory of your childhood within your family, living here and trying to restart your family life here in Southern California? Well, I had so, I had so many uh, siblings. I was the youngest of seven that I had a really nice childhood because with four older brothers and two older sisters... There was a lot of there was a lot of love and good memories. That's fantastic. Yeah, Do but you... there was some struggles, and I felt I, at the time when kids want this and they want that, they would like this, and my mom always provided. Back then, I wish I would have been a little bit more understanding of their situation and their finances. Do you feel that the government and the access to benefits and opportunities at that time for your family? There were systems in place to actually help them get started and to move them forward. I was too young. Did they ever tell, talk to you about it when you became an adult and got into your own business? No. We never really had that conversation. Hmm. And uh, they were survivors, though. They've always yeah. been really hard workers, which uh, in turn, I got that trait from them. I work seven days a week, six days a week, seven days a week. I put in... The 40 hours a week plus another 40, and my parents were always like that, too. The, we got that work, at, work ethic, basically, yeah. from, from our parents. How long has this restaurant been here and open? Uh, we opened it nine years ago. I shouldn't say we, I should say I. <laughs> well, it, your name is <laughs> yeah. on the restaurant. Go figure. Cosmos Bistro. Yeah, well, I, I grew up here most of my life, from 10 to the high school, after my dad passed away, my mom was living by by herself, and I thought, hey, this might be a good opportunity to move from San... I was living in San Diego at the time. I had a couple of delis. I thought it would be a good idea to um, relocate back to where I grew up. To help your to mom? To help my mom take yeah. care of my mom and be close to her, because I knew she, she's 90 years old now. I knew that, that there wouldn't be many years left that I got to spend with, with my mother. And she's she's the Italian one, right? No, she's she's Irish. Oh, Italian. she's the Irish one. I yeah. see. Okay, Irish Scottish. She was one. born in Glasgow, though. Okay, all right, all right. So, of course, at ninety, you immediately put her to work in the kitchen, right? Actually, she no, but she does come in. You saw it today, Les. She was in here clean. She comes in and cleans and helps out. Oh, she's still for, she's for still with hours. us. Oh, she's a hard worker. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. Yeah. No, gives her, her a purpose. Yeah. Why an Italian restaurant? You know, have you always been in the restaurant business? Was that your niche? I have. Um, like I said, my dad owned uh, two fish and chip shops in yeah. in Glasgow. So at an early age, I was always in the shop, most of the time eating. You mentioned you were a little bit chubby when you were a kid. I was really chubby. <laughs> I love fish and chips. Yeah. Oh, that's the terrible, yeah. worst diet ever for a young yeah. kid. I was always under my, my dad's feet, like at the restaurant, and the apple doesn't fall f- Far, Far from, from the, the tree, tree. Yeah. yeah. 
But so, is it a passion for you? Do you love it? Uh, well, I work so much that sometimes it originally wasn't a, a passion, but some days you just want some time off to rest and relax. It's a lot of work, believe it or not. All these TV shows about uh, how all oh, these the food shows, yeah. how they make everything so damn glamorous. Come in here and work as, <laughs> as many hours as I do and tell me it's still glamorous, you know? That's why, uh, yeah, exactly right. The, the explosion of culinary cooking shows makes it look so wonderful and glamorous. Every week there's yeah, something yeah, wrong. Yeah. Uh, we were broken into two weeks ago. The oven hoods went down. It doesn't matter. Every week there's some sort of mild disaster and you are the only one that has to take care of it. The refrigeration's down. My employees don't show up to work. You're bouncing around trying to figure out putting a, a team together on a Saturday night. It's, it's nonstop uh, situations that happen. Well, you have a it's it's a double duty job because you have the menu, the food, the preparation, buying it, buying the right amount, preparing it, updating the menu, trying new things, and then you have the business side, Correct. which is managing employees, hiring, firing. I can see where it's an 80, 90 hour a week for you. The restaurants is at a, it's the size of it. You can't really hire managers and assistant managers, head chefs, this guy book. I even do the bookkeeping. I mean, you got to wear a lot of different hats. Mm -hmm. So when you asked me originally, it's your passion. Yeah, it was my passion. And it still is. I love being my own boss. I can't work for anybody else. But unfortunately, sometimes you just get overwhelmed and you just want to say, fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you I know? Get it. I get it. Post COVID. Yeah. I mean, thank God you survived. You're still here. But post COVID, how challenging has it been with inflation, meeting those margins, paying the higher prices, getting produce and stock in here? And then paying a fair wage for employees who want to keep coming back and keep stay in the job. Well, and here the minimum wage went up to what is it, fifteen fifty for for waiters and busboys. So this is here in in, in California. California. If you go to Texas, for instance, it's like two fifty an hour. And uh, you were telling me in Utah, Kristen, how much is the minimum wage in Utah? $2.15. So these guys are getting actually a nice size paycheck along with with their tips. They're pretty yeah. much working for their tips. And the $15.50 an hour, they're not they're doing pretty good. Right. Uh, but I can see in other states where you're getting paid $2.15 an hour to wait tables, that could be kind of a struggle. But California is pretty liberal okay. with the minimum wage, wage. Minimum wage. Right? Are your employees satisfied with the money they're earning? I'm sure they are. They they do pretty well here. How much can As, a waitress make in a tip on a Friday and Saturday night? Being the small restaurant that I have, I run one waiter. Just He works all the time. He pretty much takes care of the front. And then I've got a couple of that have a full-time job that come in and, and uh, fill in the gaps, basically. But he makes $1,500 tips, just the tip part, a week. 1500 a Correct. week? Yeah, but he works all the time, too. Wow. And then his paycheck uh, after taxes is about eight to nine hundred uh, in the paycheck. So he's doing really good. As for the rest of them, they're probably not doing yeah. doing that. They're just supplementing their uh, income, basically. You've been here for nine years. Obviously, successful. it's been a struggle, though. How much longer do you think you can hold out and keep going? Uh, I was hoping uh, five more years. Okay, that's in a real world. But let's see what happens. What is the thing that keeps bringing people back? 
this town it's a small community and i think it took us three four years to get start getting a little bit more established where people felt comfortable coming back and i think we've we've pretty much passed that threshold as for signature dishes, I can tell you what's popular. The lasagna is always popular, mm. although we have many different items on the menu. But we have steaks, fish. Uh, we have 14-inch uh, pizzas, all sorts of pastas. It's a wide array of uh, food. Well, Cosmo, congratulations for being a survivor. Congratulations for getting here to America and making the best of it. Let me ask you one final question. You know, you don't have your American citizenship, but do you consider yourself an American? Of course I do, yeah. I haven't been back to Scotland since since I was 10. I've never been back. The Scotch people over here, when you find out, oh, you're Scottish, it's like an instant connection. Right. And when I tell them I've never been back, they're like, you've never, it's like almost a cardinal sin. Yeah. You've never been back? That's right. <laughs> What's wrong with you? I'm really American, though. After uh, 45 years over here, yeah. this is my homeland. I'm American. Do you have a kilt? I don't have a kilt. I don't have any Scottish blood. So we have a lot of a lot more uh, Italian traditions than Scotch. That being said, one of my brothers <laughs> thinks he's <laughs> he's a true Scot. For some reason, he's big time Scottish. If it's not Scottish, yeah. it's crap. Exactly. That's him. <laughs> Cosmo, wonderful to meet you. And welcome to the Dinoverse and, and allowing us to come in here. All right. Cool. Nice meeting you, bro. That wraps up another episode of Across the Dinoverse. A big thank you to Cosmos Bistro in Glendora, California, the pride of the foothills. Learn more about them at CosmosBistroGlendora.com. That's CosmosBistroGlendora.com. It's all one word. Personally, I love the grilled chicken pesto pizza. Oh, man, delicious. And don't miss part two of the mystery and miracle of 12-step programs from neo-Nazi to Museum of Tolerance. It'll be a good one, I promise you. Theme music by Keith Brock and the Kings Who Rock. And if you want to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com backslash Dynaverse and a big thank you from me. Across the Dynaverse, always searching for the heart and soul of America, one diner at a time. I'm John Murphy. What's your story?